How can companies and leaders become future ready and adapt to a rapidly changing world? What role board members play in all this and eventually what qualities should aspiring board members have when it comes to developing a new skill set? Well, these are some of the questions that we'll explore today in this new episode of the VAB podcast that features our guest, Peter Tommen. After 30 years covering executive roles at IKEA, across Poland, Russia, Japan, and even more countries, Peter is now the founder and CEO of The Global Strategist and Sparring Partner, a company that gets your organization ready for the future and established true sustainability for your business, for people, and for the planet. He has an impressive background that I'm excited to host him on the show. Welcome, Peter. Welcome. I look forward to the talk. It's going to be a pleasure to have you here, Peter. Uh, but before getting to our chat, let me remind our audience about the purpose of this podcast. So here across the episodes, we will always leverage on our guests' knowledge to learn with them about how you can become a better advisor and how you can accelerate your career and your business as a board member. Also reminding, here is your host, Andrea Yoyer speaking. I'm an Italian keynote speaker to more than 100 companies per year, focusing on digital transformation, leadership, and innovation, and a best-selling author of three books in Portuguese. Yes, I'm based out of New York City now, but I worked over the last 10 years in Brazil as the head of Tinder and as a chief digital officer at L'Oreal, and where I today teach at the executive MBA of Fundação Dom Cabral. But now, Peter, now to our discussion going to be an exciting one. And to start off, I wanted to get a bit more of, of your background. So tell us more about your story of who is Peter so that our audience can get to know you better. Yes. So I'm first a Swiss national and I grew up uh, in the Basel region in a countryside restaurant. So my parents were running a restaurant, uh, which kind of, um, you know, let me understand uh, what hard work is. So they were uh, for seven years not closing it one day and after 14 years they made first time holidays so it wow. was a very hard working environment <laughs> and the other pass from this childhood time which is very important i'm a soccer i'm a soccer fan from the oh. football club in basel of course then business wise i was like uh, after my studies um, i was um, keen to leave this small country with the high mountains and discovering the big world. This was something which came inside uh, myself. And then uh, the door opener for that was IKEA. So IKEA. I uh, applied yeah. for a job to become a, a business controller for East Central Europe uh, back in 1989. And East Central Europe at that time was still closed. In school, we only knew this is like this uh, Soviet empire uh, part of this, which was created after the Bolshevistic revolution, and this whole world opened. And in this time, I joined this IKEA East Central Europe, and only one and a half years I was in the company, I got offered to move to Poland as a finance manager, and I was like, wow, never had a leadership experience, nothing, and IKEA trusts me to take this responsibility, and then I felt, let's take it, I am uh, uh, ready for it. And then when coming to Poland, there was like one very small start job IKEA, very, very small. Okay. And uh, I stayed there for 15 years, 15. Wow. I was five years finance manager, five years I built up business navigation and five years I was CFO. And then when leaving, we had seven stores, six shopping centers, a central warehouse for Eastern Europe. And when it comes to purchase and trading, Poland was the second biggest country in IKEA. So... Poland inside IKEA 
grew from very small to a very sizable organization, a whole allowed the whole IKEA pipeline, and I was kind of the finance guy who was, or the administration guy, uh, building it up from the scratch for 15 long years. That was That's... also, I became Polish, of course, at that time. Oh, I got, uh, in 2005, uh, citizenship, Polish. And also on a private side, during these 15 years, I made a full cycle. Uh, full cycle means I fell in love, I engaged, I married, and I divorced. <laughs> that's the full cycle it's true but you know that's also part of really living uh in a new country that's uh that's really amazing and now you're back yes. in switzerland right peter yeah but you know this this was came together the divorce came together ikea was not expanding for it had a phase of no expansion and i gave the signal i'm ready to move on and then my globe trotting years uh, started i can say i, I moved to ikea japan also, it was just after the first business opened, kind of the same mission as in Poland, just uh, it was only retail. So it was only retail business okay. and it was much, much smaller. But of course, it was a wonderful uh, cultural challenge. Japan, truly, truly different. Wow. So it was it was really the cultural aspect and how uh, how to work and how Japanese understand IKEA, how IKEA tries to understand the Japanese market. These were the, the, the topics. I think we were the first or one of the first big box retailers that were successful for in, uh, in, in Japan. Now there are many artists, but we were among the first. Uh, I'm sure. Yes. And it's and a then, very challenging market. Yeah. To get in if you're a foreigner. Yeah. Very hard. Yes, and, and then I was asked to join uh, to join uh, building up shared services in IKEA, and this is because in my MBA thesis, which I did at the end of my Polish time, this was the topic I covered, shared services. Okay. And then uh, I moved to Leiden, to, to the Netherlands, mm -hmm. and only after one and a half years, we just went live with the first country in the first center, mm -hmm. uh, the CFO called me and asked me to join him. And then I went and to my big surprise, he offered me or asked me or begged me, I don't know how to say, <laughs> and moved to Russia. Uh, because he had a big crisis in the shopping center uh, division there. Uh, principally say the, the previous management was uh, not fulfilling rules and regulations according IKEA standards. Mm -hmm. so, uh, yeah, let's say they were buying uh, permits, etc. And then IKEA changed the whole management and put the uh, IKEA experience that people in, and I was the one for finance. This was three very, very tough years, mm -hmm. uh, very hardworking, but uh, in a way enjoyable uh, as well. I think after that, I always say, I think there is nothing to come that I've not seen yet. <laughs> exactly. Which yeah. which in one way or another brings us to actually the topic that you're working today, which is future yeah. readiness, right? Because, you know, you work with companies to get them ready for a rapidly changing world. And right. And so uh, you when we were talking, yeah, like you got a calling actually to do this. How did you get the call then during this, you know, like transitions and your career, your personal aspirations? Yeah, was, How did you get a calling around future readiness? Yes, this was in 2005, as long as 2000, since 2005, I'm on, on the topic. And we got an invitation. We, this are experienced DKO CFOs. The Copenhagen okay. Institute of Future Studies led, uh, it was quite weird, the workshop. It was words in like from best practice to next practice to, I don't know. It was really difficult to understand what it is about. But then when it started, their mission actually was 
the CF or the finance world, which was perceived as a, how to say, rather a, not a change agent, but rather as a roadblock. It was how to move these guys from roadblocks becoming change agents. And they made such a wonderful job. The Copenhagen Institute, I fell in love with actually uh, the topic. Uh, how to, you know, we learned scenario planning, we learned strategic foresight, and I just started to smell what that could mean if yeah. you do it, if you do a strategic foresight preceding a, a, st a strategy work. So when this uh, education, they can say, okay, I was over, I went to my CEO in Poland and said, listen, we have to do something. Poland is now joining the European Union. Nobody in Poland knows how it will develop after, until the joining of the Union. Everybody had the same, let's say, uh, idea about the, the future. And then you say, okay, do it. And that was that came my first strategic foresight project. This is how I, uh, how I came into it. I kept in contact with the Copenhagen Institute. One of mm -hmm. my very best personal friends is actually a mm -hmm. futurist there, which helps to be close to the topics. So I kept all the time contact and I made quite many, I think three of them in IKEA, strategic foresight projects on whole country organization and also outside uh, quite many things. I just am in love with this uh, tool and approach. Okay. And well, of course, when whenever there is a calling around some work, it's easier to do, it's more passionate. And so I wanted to ask you then how all this works. Like as a consultant now, how do you help CEOs and leaders and businesses to develop such strategies that can be considered future-proof and adaptable in a VUCA world? Uh, how yes. does this work? Is first of all, I decided not to be a consultant or an advisor, but a sparring partner. Because sparring I think that reflects, yes. that reflects it in a much better way. So I don't go to a company and say, this is what you should do. What, right. what I do is then basically with the strategic foresight, it's to lead the process. So to make sure the right experts are there who inspire the company on the topics which are relevant from, for them. Then I moderate the whole scenario planning process. So how they come to four scenarios and then I moderate the process, how to um, take the learnings out of the scenarios and move them into strategy. Maybe I give a little background on how a strategic foresight works because yeah. it's, if you don't really know it, it sounds a bit, uh, uh, how to say, it's so much simpler to do mm -hmm. it than it sounds. So what first, the future is there three levels about future. The things they say are sure, and these are the mega trends. So they are going to happen. An example, artificial intelligence. Yes. This is a mega trend. We know it's happening. We know it will impact everything. Everybody, you cannot escape it, even if you want it, you can't. So that's a mega trend. And this is happening for sure. And Copenhagen has 15 of them. Second level is this 50-50. Will it move that way or will it move that way? Yeah. So in IKEA, will the demand on home furnishing relative to retail be higher or lower? I don't know. You can ask five, 10 experts and then you get uh, 10 or 11 opinions, I think. But at the end, it's uncertain. And the third level is wildcards. Those who have a small uh, probability to happen, but a big impact. And you can almost move them all together because you don't build a strategy around them. It's more about the resilience and the business continuity you have to build out of that. And then uh, you build with what you know and with the uncertainty uh, we, in the method I work with, you choose the two top uncertainties. You have like the plus and the minus. You make a crisscross with four 
for uh, for fields, and then you create four worlds. And then uh, in the first session, you put experts which uh, inspire the company on the topics which are relevant for their case. And then uh, the company is doing the scenarios. How would our company or our strategy look if the work is like that or like that or like that? And then when the four are over, there's actually, actually also a magic in the number four. It's interesting. If you make two scenarios, it's always a black and a white. That's how it is. If you make three, you always have an extreme yes and extreme no in the middle of the road, where 80% will always choose the middle of the road. And then when you have four, you have no pre, uh, preconception in your brain. So they are like equivalent. So you look at them in an equivalent way. But usually then we do, we are voting, uh, which is the most likely which you think is the most happening and the other is which is the most preferred. And already when you do that, you open the, what, what I call it's the magic that happens then. Because you move from running behind the future uh, and adapting, you move into uh, creating the future. So what, what you do, you put yourself 10 years into the future, you make four scenarios, then you think this is how the world could be. And when you then move into strategy, then you build a strategy for the future, which is completely different mindset than if you just start today from status quo. That's basically the thing. That's how it works. And, and I think it's interesting because in one way or another, then companies can kind of like pick the scenarios that they feel more interesting and work towards creating that, as you mentioned, right? And so it's more like instead of just, you know, expecting the future to happen is like building and creating it, right? And so yes. when it comes to leaders of these companies, like how should they act, let's say, you know, with this increasing disruption caused by digitalization, for example, in technologies such as AI, uh, blockchain, uh, and so on. So how can these leaders stay ahead of the curve and, uh, you know, working with the boards, especially because whenever we look at the decisions that boards make, to me, oftentimes they are the decisions that shape the future of the companies, of course, together with management. What's the role that board members play in all this? Like, should they only give oversight or they should also, you know, work together with the management to create this future? Um, what's your take on board's uh, specific role? Yes. I mean, I, I can also refer to a study that Copenhagen Institute did uh, exactly regarding that. So boards consider themselves the future readiness as one of their top uh, top most important uh, topics. But then it's strange when you look what the activities are for getting future ready. Is hardly anything in that is about uh, five years plus in the future that is systematic. So these are things like, uh, you know, one is that the, the business continuity in case of a disaster, it's about succession planning, it's about uh, su such activities, but this is not part that's I call it a strategic foresight paradox. On one hand, also in, the, in a survey, 50% of CEOs say that uh, there will be a bigger major change in my industry, let's say in three to five years, 50. And the other 50 say it's not, but they feel future proof, which is also a question at the stage, but only 20, 26% do a kind of foresight and only 11 do something like five years plus. 
So this is almost absurd. You say something big is happening, yeah. but you don't prepare for it. Yeah. And that's, I believe, because strategic foresight has not mainstreamed. And that's basically my call now, helping companies uh, in creating strategic foresight projects uh, and then moderating this process. The way I work, it's like uh, you have basically the company invests 15 days. It's two days for input one day for deciding about which are the uncertainties, and then it's two days for the creation of the of the scenarios. And then the rest is, uh, you know, after workshop um, uh, time to, to, to summarize it and to make sure it moves into strategy. It's another thing, a lot of foresight projects are done for the gallery, I can say. They do foresight projects because they look cool, it's interesting, yeah. talk about But then the step to move it into strategies is another key thing. It doesn't make sense if you make future scenarios and then it doesn't lead to any action. Oh, no, that's then, exactly so, so true. I, I try to join. That's why I think sparring partner is good. Like in sports, what is a sparring partner? The sparring partner is not about being the one which is the hero. The, the sparring partner makes sure that the hero, in my case, the client and the customer is at its best. That's how I see my role. So I try to uh, spar with, with the company so they get the best out uh, of their strategy to be future ready. Really. It's true. I, I like the idea. I think most companies maybe, you know, as you mentioned, they make it wrong. First of all, uh, in some cases, they think there's no way to just predict the future. So why make the effort? Or maybe they subestimate change. And so they kind of like keep on doing the same things in a world that's changing. Also, this brings a discrepancy. And also third big problem is, as you mentioned, that they might do these strategic foresights and plans and look at the future, but they do not do things related to that. Like they do not implement the initiatives that mm -hmm. are needed. Like how important is this implementation part? Do you also work on that or basically only on the strategic foresight? Side, uh, planning. No, I have basically my main product, if I call it the strategic foresight, and then I have four more. One is strategy development, but most companies have actually a cool process there already, if it's OTR, if it's balance, scorecard, or anything, but I can moderate or co-moderate. Then this, uh, and But I want to, when I get involved in that, it's the most important is to make sure these priorities from strategic foresight are in. Maybe I give an example. When we did it for shared services, that was 2016. Okay. Uh, and we had like three uh, key keynote speakers about uh, the future of the shared service industry. And one, one, we had 12 conclusions, but one was there will be a war of talent. There will be two less talent. And then it's, you know, the typical foresight. We knew and we were sure it's going to happen. So we knew before it happens. So we had a very strong focus on how do we uh, work in the world of there is a war, war for talent. So we defined, in, in our case, we defined shared service as a talent pool. So we were working actually five, the goal was 5% of our coworkers are leaving for other IKEA units. And by this, we got very attracted on the market. We got top talent in, and in reality, we delivered three to 4% a year. It was one of the measures which was very successful. And we 
yeah, we also built an activity-based office very close to the needs of the people. So it was a very, I believe it was one of the coolest offices in the whole IKEA world at the end. But but uh, it was like we worked proactively and not now when then it happens and companies, oh wow, we have now two less people. What do we do? So we were uh, like like aware of it. But then this as it's summarizing the I call them strategic considerations, and then they have to be part when you start strategy uh, development. And then another part, I think, which I think many companies do a very bad job, is, is to bring people with them. I think the launch of a strategy is a very, very cool kickoff where you do involve the people, where you plan half a year in advance and you let, let's say, the strategy for HR not be presented by the HR manager, but the HR team. And you put them on a stage and you tell them uh, present it and do it the way you want, just don't use PowerPoint. It's cool, cool, cool day. On the other hand, it also each team prepares, oh, how do I present it? By that, they also have to occupy with themselves what's the most important. And by that, the whole team realizes what is actually where, where we want to go. So I love uh, organizing kickoffs uh, that are transporting the message to the many people and not only to, to, to the management. Then what I also have is the plan to perform uh, form process. I think also follow-ups are very, very often past-oriented. When you compare actual budget, you compare to the past because yeah. budget was done in the past and you always explain what happened, why is it not where we are. Instead, you have a, a future-oriented. So also my plan to perform process or concept is about making it future-oriented and uh, not uh, looking always back and explaining, but looking forward and then uh, new forecasting and, and delivering. It's true. So it's that's, like, that's you know, it's us making decisions or uh, let's use this analogy. It's like driving a car, but instead of looking through the, you know, glass in front of us, we just look through the rear mirror and we make decisions about the future based on our past performances, past successes. We compare month to month. We might be growing, but we actually are not growing enough for what the you know market is growing we might be not growing but that's actually you know like not really a measure of success in the future so if we look mm -hmm. at the traditional metrics month on month year on year we're still looking through the rear mirror so i think here's important you know at least one piece of advice uh, might be you know like to look at new kpis that are more predictive of the future but overall i wanted to hear from you let's say that uh, you know, board members, non-executive ad uh, uh, directors or advisors are listening to this podcast episode. Which are the advices that you would give to them uh, to implement in their day-to-day -day lives, like these new ways to look at the future? Or at least what qualities should they focus on developing to become yes, future-ready? Uh, my point is the board should give a mandate or an order or something like that yeah, yeah. to the C-level management team to do as a foresight. Right. And it's not the board who runs it, but the C-level management, because the people who execute it should do it. But then, of course, the outcome they present to the board and the board, uh, of course, approves uh, the conclusions they take out of them and, and move in. Right. And what I usually do, you know, in the in this session, when you inspire the, the team for the future, I invite the chairman of the board as one of the speakers. 
And then it's a little bit tricky depending on the company culture. If the chairman of the board is going to talk about his vision about the future of the company, it can take that the participants may take this, we have to fulfill it. But the team has to take this just as one input. This is where our board wants to go, board wants to go. But then if based on the other input, it turns out not to be the right, they have to be strong enough to go back to the board and say, based on this and that, we suggest this and that direction. So the board should give the order, should use it, if appropriate, to give the, the input to it, but then also be ready to listen to the C-level team, whether they think it's right. That's that's how I would approach it. Totally. If the board is doing it, then the C-level team will not identify if you get like, uh, this is how the world will look in 10 years and this is how you have to move. That That is not... Uh, because the magic is when the team does it together and they get the same uh, pictures of the yeah. future and the same visions that brings them uh, together in in the not on paper but in the spirit in the daily cooperation to be future future ready future oriented. And 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 you're right because if teams and people within the company do not share a similar vision of the future, and since people make decisions about their day to day work based on a longer term vision. They will actually do things that are non-coordinated, maybe non-focused on the same objective. And so you won't have really collaboration and focus. So I think starting off from a shared vision is super important. Yes. You know, my, my experience on the difference, if you are in, in, in a management team that did the foresight or not, uh, you know, in the team, you have different interests. Let's say in shared services, some wanted rather a finance-oriented, other wanted rather HR, right. third want to push this or push that. And then you have like, uh, I don't know, a position fight, I want mine and da 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 And if you do a foresight, because there you create different futures, all can put in all input and all input is there in the scenarios. But then together in a structured process, you come to the conclusion, let's say, world of talent will come important yeah it doesn't matter if you want a finance center or a, a continuous improvement priority is is important and you agree and then you have these position fights go get less and you get more uh let me say constructive you create these uh, pictures of the future and you work towards to, to yeah. towards them together i feel you have a higher level uh conversation after you look differently also into the into the future because you know oh, this is a development that is important but you don't know how it develops let's take metaverse you don't yeah. know how the metaverse but if you are in a business where the metaverse is important and you work on it then you look completely different on on the development than you do if you just everybody has his private view on it yeah that's that's totally true that's, that's, that's totally true, true. <laughs> that's that's really nice insights i think for our audience who struggle at times with this uh, way of looking at the future and the way to engage actually teams on it i think you know oftentimes we look at our day-to-day -day work we just do what we think it's important for now but we do not think too much about the future right and i think this should definitely change and um but peter the, of, yeah and, no, please I mean, go ahead. think on the di disruptive world we are in I think it's mandatory now that every three years, five years, I don't know, you move the whole team out of this daily work. And yeah. is our is our model still right in a perspective of five to ten years? It's just I think important now. 
it's key and we should have these yeah. moments uh, or at least interact with people that are also outside of our market outside of our industry uh, other peers and i think this maybe brings us to another question that i i wanted to pivot away and, and ask you about uh, vab right we're on the vab podcast and vab is a great network of peers and 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 people who also uh, think about all of these issues and i wanted to get your personal perspective actually about your experience at vab so far uh, how it has worked out for you uh, if you made some good connection in Senate, eventually if it also helped in this uh, kind of like strategic foresight uh, work that you do because of exactly like exposing yourself to such amazing people. Yeah. First of all, uh, we had lately a, a face-to-face meeting in Zürich, the, the Swiss yeah. chapter. And then after that, I put a post on LinkedIn and I wrote, it started like this, if the virtual advisory board would not exist, it would be high time to event it. I think oh, yeah. it's just great. It's just great. I don't know. We were 30 people there, probably 50 nationalities, all sorts of industries, and all are that the profile of the people is so interesting. I think that the, for me, the big value is the network. I must say a lot in the content is about startups. It's about venture capital and these parts, which are not so much in, in, in my interest. I think, but then the networking, you know, just having the door open, I can call anybody in the virtual advisory board and just say, have, let's have a virtual coffee and we talk about this and that, and the door is open. This is uh, a big thing. And then uh, this um, board tribes uh, we started. You know, I'm in one group with, uh, we are now seven people. It's amazing. So we meet we meet six times over a year and we decided in autumn we have a retreat in London also. Yeah. And these are, you know, the, so diverse. And, you know, I feel like, you know, sometimes you're very alone in your decision making. What should I do? And I think there is like an, an anchor of, of people I can share, including personal issues, not only strict business which is outside your usual network. So I can have this like a sounding board. So for example, my new positioning, I was sharing with them and uh, got very, very valuable input points that I would not have seen before I I got from there. This is uh, amazing. And now uh, I met also when uh, David was in Zurich. Yeah. Uh, So um, I'm now... I, I talked with, with him about was kind of the idea, and now we agreed. So the Copenhagen Institute of Future Studies will become a partner of uh, of uh, VAB. That's and amazing to hear. It will offer like, you know, a part, if you get member of, of the Copenhagen Institute of Future Studies costs 100 euros or something like that, mm-hmm. and you get access to all the, the documentation they do. They have a fantastic... Uh, uh, quarterly, I think it's more than a magazine. But basically, if you choose that, then you can stay on top of the future with a world-class uh, institution. And I'm then inside the VAB. I will be the uh, ambassador for future readiness. So I will uh, make the VAB community aware of if there is an interesting, uh, I don't know, webinar, if a new documentation that is worth to look at. Lately, they made a fantastic Delphi study about the metaverse. Amazing. I think it would be interesting for everybody, and I could share that uh, with the VAB. So uh, I. I feel very warm and very, uh, how to say, uh, I get good vibes when I think about VAB. I love love it. I think the VAB community also 
thank you very much for that because uh, I think it's something very important to each one of us. And so uh, it's going to be very nice uh, to actually be able to rely on such an amazing institute and to have you as that pivotal person that can help uh, people to get really, again, as a sparring partner for future readiness. So I really wanted to thank you on behalf of the VAB community, on behalf of David and Mark uh, for this. And um, well, now, Peter, that our conversation is moving towards the end, I didn't want to uh, uh, close it up before making a last question, like a bit of inspiration from uh, uh, your best readings, books, podcasts, authors. What do you think that are some suggestions or at least, you know, some things that really change the way you look at the future or anything in your career that you recommend other people listening to or reading? Um, any piece of advice? Yes, and it's connected to the Copenhagen Institute again because they had different publications all the time. And now since I think May 22, they have one publication called Farsight. This is a quarterly uh, okay. magazine. It's 90 page plus, so it's pretty a lot of content and all our future related topics. And um, this is the one I would recommend any business person, board member, C-level person to kind of subscribe and read because it's a pretty little effort actually and when you have it it's it's fun to read it to stay in tune with the, with the future Farsight is the publication you need to be a member of uh, okay SIS, but as i said it costs 110 or so euro okay. which is like a subscription yeah. of, of, of a newspaper or, or something then you stay in touch with the future all like lately there was about one topic was a world pulled apart and looking into the geopolitics like in the last edition is this delphi study about the metaverse etc and if you subscribe to it and follow that um, publication very easy actually to stay in tune with the important topics for the future that's a great piece of advice and also really thanks for strengthening this bond within vab and the copenhagen institute um thanks a lot peter okay. actually for the conversation oh, sorry go ahead yeah, maybe if somebody's interested in how to get this far side or interested yes. to learn something about this just contact me in, inside VAB. I'm, I, I will be the bridge between the two institutions anyhow that's so, amazing to know and just know that uh, we're going to share your contacts within the description of the episode so for who's listening and is interested in getting in touch with peter uh you can find it within the description of the episode and so Peter, I just wanted to thank you so much for your amazing participation and discussion. Thanks for sharing with us and the VAB community uh, all of this knowledge. I really hope to welcome you back soon anytime to the VAB podcast. Yes, thank you very much for having me a guest and giving me the opportunity to share what I just said. Thanks a lot. It's been a wonderful discussion. And now that we've reached the end, I really hope that you all listeners enjoyed listening to the episode and be sure to expect more and more high quality content over the next one with more guests from the VAB community coming to share their knowledge and ideas. Stay tuned. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget it to share it with your colleagues, friends, family, whomever you think will benefit from this great discussion with Peter. And that's it for now from the VAB podcast and see you in the next episode.